This week's message is called The Breakup, and this is taken from Jeremiah chapter 2. But before we begin, I'm going to invite everyone to just bow your heads with me as we begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the privilege to be able to share your word. I ask that you would speak to each heart, especially as we look at this passage, as we look at this chapter, and your message to your people, not only for that time, but also to us who are living here today. So speak to us, for we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sorry about that. Um, So I want to, if you have a Bible, even if it's digital, I want to encourage you to open it because what I'm going to be referring to, it's going to be in passing. And if you can look at it, the truth of what I'm saying will be more apparent to you. Jeremiah chapter two, I'm going to start in verse two, and I'd like you to notice what the Bible says. Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth. Now, Jeremiah 2 uses the imagery of a couple in advancing stages. In other words, God as the uh, guy, you could say, and then Israel as the lady. And in this analogy, God outlines the progression of their relationship. So the first thing that he mentions is he says, I remember the kindness of thy youth. In other words, God says, I remember when we first started and I remember how nice you were to me. And, you know, if you've ever dated, if you're married, you know how this works. Like, you know, when you first meet someone, you're going to be as nice as you can to make a good impression, right? That's kind of the way that that relationships start. And this is how God remembers the early stages of Israel's relationship with him, okay? But then it says in verse two, and the love of thine espousals. So the word espousals uh, is a kind of a word that basically, if we were to modernize it, it's, it would be like betrothal or engagement. So the relationship went from like, just, you know, they started out, they were nice to each other, but you know this, if you want to go from, you know, just dating to getting engaged, there is a upward progression or a, a steady increase of affection, care, kindness, and attentions that ultimately climax in someone accepting the proposal, if that makes sense. And so here is God reminding Israel, hey, you know, I, I, I remember that how nice you were to me. And then, of course, when we finally got, you know, engaged and, you know, here we were. And then it says in verse two, and thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Now, this is a reference to when Israel left Egypt and, of course, followed God in the wilderness. Now, don't forget that in the analogy of a couple, this was an exclusive relationship. In other words, she left Egypt and now was with God alone in the wilderness. So you could say that there's this steady progression of an exclusive relationship between God and his people. So that's how God recounts the early stages of their relationship. 
And now I want you to notice what God did for his people. This is in verse three. In verse three, it says, Israel was holiness unto the Lord and the first fruits of his increase. Now, in this passage, God refers to his people as the first fruits. Now, some of you may know this. In ancient Israel, they had a service called a feast called the Feast of the First Fruits. And the first fruits were those elements of the harvest that ripened first. And typically, they were considered the best. So this was dedicated just to God. Now, I want you to know that when God says that Israel was holiness unto him and he was the first fruits, what God was saying was that he looked at Israel as better than everything else. It was like, you know, for our modern expression, we would say it was the apple of his eye. This was like the choice, the select, the elite, the creme de la creme. This was the best. This is what God was describing Israel as. And so you get a sense that God had a passion for his people, but not just that. If you keep reading, it says in verse three, all that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Now, what God was saying is, whoever touches my people, Israel, um, I'm going to punish them. So not only did he passionately love Israel, you know, in this analogy of a couple, but he protected her. He watched over her. He, he, anybody that touches them, they're dead. You know, that's it. And then it goes on to say um, that he also provided for them. Look at verse seven. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. So what God is saying is, I didn't just love you. I, did, I wasn't passionately in love with you. And I didn't just protect you, but I even provided for you. And you know this, Israel was a land flowing with milk and honey. This was a place where, you know, it was bountiful. Remember when they brought the grapes and everything, you know, two men had to carry it. God gave them the best. And so this was the description of God's care. He, he had passion for them. He protected them. And of course, he provided for them like any good husband should do, right? Okay. But then God describes the breakup. And I want you to pay attention because this is where this begins to become personalized. This is where things begin to apply to us. Now, Jeremiah 2 verse 5, God, thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? So what God says now is, hey, you know, what did I do? Why did, why did you guys leave? Why do you guys want to break up? And see, if you've ever been in a relationship and it goes sour, almost without fail, one of the parties is going to say something like this. Hey, what did I do wrong? Like, what happened? Like, like, where did this, you know, how did we get to this point? Like, why did this just dissolve all of a sudden? And that's literally what God is saying in verse five. He's saying, hey, what did I do wrong? Like, like, show me, tell me, like, because I want to know, like, why did you leave, you know? So that's verse five. And, um, you know, <clears throat> I want you to think and apply this to your own experience, because I believe that every one of us in here we can look back at our past experience and we can say without a doubt, yes, God showed me his love for me. Yes, God did protect me. Yes, God did provide for me. I think all of us can say that. So the question that God is asking is, okay, so then 
you know, why haven't you been faithful to me? You know, what did I do wrong? That's the question that God is asking now. And if you want to know what the nation of Judah was like, because Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom. Um, if you want to know what the people of Judah were like at this time, I'm going to just highlight a few verses. And like I said, it would help if you have your own Bible, because you'll be able to see it easier. I'll just read snippets of these verses, but you'll be able to see it much more clearly. I want you to look at verse 20 of Jeremiah 2. For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou sayest, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. Okay, so if I could summarize Judah at this time, they said one thing, but they did something else. In other words, like they literally said to God, God, we're going we're gonna to do right. And then Jeremiah records that they literally went right into idolatry. You know, I think, I think we, we all as human beings, we hate duplicity. If someone says to you, hey, you're my great friend, you know, I'll, I would never hurt you or whatever. And then they turn around and stab you in the back. We hate, I mean, nobody likes being stabbed in the back. But what hurts is when someone says something but then, of course, does the exact opposite. And that was the duplicitous nature of Judah. Now, if I could bring this home, I'm not saying this is good, but I've been guilty of this. I've made bargains with God. I've been in some crazy situations, and I've said, God, if you will get me out of this thing, I promise you, like, I'll give this up. I'll stop doing, you know, like, and look, God, God doesn't want us to, to bargain with him. I mean, really, if you think about it, we have no chips to bargain with, right? But the point is that how often have we made vows or made promises and then boom, we turn around and we do the exact opposite. Like we just forget everything, right? We, we've all been there. So this is Judah during that time, okay? Not only that, um, verse 23 says, how canst thou say I am not polluted? I have not gone after Balaam. See thy way in the valley. Know that thou hast know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary traversing her ways. Now, verse 23, as I was studying this, this whole chapter, verse 23 struck, stuck out to me. Um, so basically, if I could summarize the description, really, it goes down to verse 25. They were spiritually, they were committing adultery. Um, you know, they were supposed to be married to God but instead they were worshiping Baal. And, um, you know, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the worship of Baal. Um, Baal was the worship of the sun and uh, it involved, you know, like kind of some elements of, of nature worship and things, but the worship of Baal also included sexual immorality. So Baal worship was kind of a very licentious, a very like degrading form of, of religion. What's interesting though, is that here are God's people and uh, they're playing the harlot, God says. In other words, they're spiritually unfaithful and uh, they're, they're, not, they're not doing what God, uh, or they're not being faithful to God. And, you know, I think a lot of times when we apply the experience of Israel, we think, we look at them and we think like, God did all these things for them. And then how is it that they doubt again, they go to idolatry. And yet in our own experience, um, 
how often is this true as well? Now, look, if I made an application on this part of the passage, I would say it like this. Nobody here today, I don't think, is you know, setting up carved wooden or, or stone images and bowing down. But I'm gonna tell you, um, a lot of people have a form of idolatry in the form of a flat screen that they spend hours and hours in front of, but not much time in front of the Bible, right? That's, I, I wanna say that's a form of idolatry or spiritual infidelity. Um, if you look at verse 29, it says, <clears throat> um, in vain, oh, sorry, this is verse, verse 30. In vain have I smitten your children. They received no correction. Now, this is what's interesting. God allowed trials to come, and yet the trials did not have the intended effect of making them turn back to God. Now, I know that if you look in the Bible, you will find different kinds of trials. Some trials come because God is testing us. He wants to show us what's in our own hearts. Like Job is a good example. John the Baptist is another example. And there are other people like Daniel and such. And these are times when it's not because of a fault of their own, but rather, you know, God just allows them to be tested, not only to strengthen them, but it reveals what's in their hearts. But some trials come because we make bad choices and we reap the consequences of those choices. Well, this is what God was allowing to happen to Judah. Uh, a, a number of nations like Egypt and then eventually Babylon would come and punish them. But the problem was that they didn't get it. Like they could not see the connection between the trial that God allowed to come and their need to turn away from the sin that they were involved in. They couldn't see it. And what's interesting is that there are people, do you know, uh, some of you will know this, and I'm not going to seek to prove this, but some of you will know this from experience. When God allows trials to come, some of those trials, they could be years apart, but they're very similar and they keep coming back. And the reason they come back is because you haven't learned the first time and so it's like a teacher. If you don't get it the first time, he's going to go over it again. And he's going to go over it again. God help us to get it the first time. Can you say amen? Okay. Because if we don't get it the first time, then it's just going to keep coming back. And, and sadly, Judah, they just didn't get it. They did not get it. Okay. So what else? They were forgetful. This is verse 31. No, no, sorry. Verse 32, can a maid forget her ornaments or bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. You know, all of us can look back and see amazing providences of God. He provided for us. He delivered us. He protected us. You know, I think I once asked how many of you have ever seen a real miracle happen in your life? And yet when the memory of those become dim, we tend to wander away from God. If we could keep that fresh in our minds, it would really help us to be more faithful. Judah's problem was she couldn't remember. Okay, and then they were arrogant. Okay, they were arrogant. Uh, verse 35, yet thou sayest, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Now, you don't have to read the whole book of Jeremiah. You can just read chapter two, but they were steeped in idol worship, okay? They were steeped in these crazy rituals to Baal and such. And yet they had the audacity to say, 
Uh, I haven't done anything wrong. I don't think that's bad, you know? And I hate to say this, but there are Christians that are like this too. They are doing things that are wrong, but they can't see it. And they actually have the audacity to say like, what's wrong with that? You know, like, like I, don't, I don't see what's wrong. Look, folks, it's, it's not that someone says it's wrong to you. It's what does the Bible say, okay? If the Bible says it's wrong, then it's wrong, okay? But anyway, so when God looks at the whole nation of Judah and he sees all these problems, he pinpoints one of the causes for these problems. And you know who it was? I'm going to ask you to look at verse uh, 8, Jeremiah 2, verse 8. The priests said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. So there's three groups of people mentioned here. There's the priests, the pastors, and the prophets. Now, I want to tell you something. I believe that the nation of Judah, if you chart their history, when they have a good king, the nation does well. But when they have a bad king, the nation just goes down. Good king up, bad king down. And really, this is true in any, even a secular organization. The level of morale, and in this case, we're talking about spiritual, you know, spiritual health. In the level of spiritual health in a family, in a church, in a conference, it's always dictated by the level of spiritual um, tone that's set by the leadership. So let me break this down. In your family, if you are the parents, your example sets the spiritual tone in your family. If you look at your children and say, man, my kids are, are really not spiritual. Part of that is because of the level of spirituality that you are projecting to your children. In a church, it's the same. A church's spirituality is directly proportionate to the spiritual spirituality of its leadership. And that's not just the pastors, although it includes the pastors, but it includes the elders and the deacons and the Sabbath school teachers and so on. So this understanding is important for us because when we look at the experience of Israel and Judah, we have to make it applicable to us today. And I really believe that as a church, our spiritual level is really a constituent of the spirituality of all of its leaders, okay? So that's a challenge for those of us who are in spiritual leadership. Now, I wanna say this because I believe that there were two things that Israel, I'm sorry, that Judah did that ultimately constituted her demise, okay? And I'm gonna ask you to look with me at verse 12, okay? And this is, when you look at this, it, even in English, it's really amazing. Jeremiah 2, verse 12, it says, be astonished, O ye heavens. Now remember, God is speaking through Jeremiah. And so God is kind of saying like, universe, can you believe this? Okay, universe, can you look, I, I mean, you know, onlooking worlds, can you really believe this? Uh, and be horribly afraid. 
be very desolate, saith the Lord. So he's kind of saying like, this is so shocking. This is just terrible. Okay. But what's so terrible? Verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, excuse me, that can hold no water. So this is what God tells the onlooking universe to be amazed by. He says, there's two things that my people have done. Number one, they have forsaken the fountain of living waters, okay? So don't miss the context of who God is speaking to. Jeremiah is speaking to the southern kingdom, Judah. And remember, this is in, you know, what we would call Palestine today. This is in the Middle East. And you know that water in the Middle East is very precious. Now, please don't miss this. As water is precious, in those places, when you find uh, not just a well, but when you find an artesian well. So you know what artesian well is, right? It's when the water is, it naturally flows up. You don't have to pump it up because of ground pressure. The water is forced up automatically. That kind of a well, you know, this fountain, as the Bible describes it, is especially valuable and precious. Why? Because typically these fountains, not only did you not have to take effort to bring it out, but because of the constant movement of the water, the water was clean. You know, it was pure. It was, it was tasteful. It was delicious, you know? And so here is this imagery that God projects to these people in the Middle East. You forsook me, the fountain of living waters, okay? But for what? Well, it says they've hewed out cisterns. Now, this is very interesting. In the Middle East, it was very common because water was so scarce that people, you know, like some of these places, I understand that during a year, they might have like two, three inches of rainfall. That's nothing. So what they would do is they would dig these giant caverns in the ground. And these caverns, they would line the, the, the bottoms and sides with limestone. And the idea was that they would channel surface rainwater into them and then hold it for when they would need, you know, drinking water. And what's interesting is that sometimes the limestone, when it got dry, it would develop cracks and then they would go to the cistern and there would be nothing in it. And, and you probably understand this too, because of the effect of like osmosis and things, when water, when, when something cracks, not only does the water go down, it leaks down, but the impurities leak up as well, right? And so the water in cisterns was usually musty. Um, I read, you know, from some Bible dictionary commentary that sometimes they would even develop worms. So, you know, it's kind of this rancid, you know, moldy, kind of like this very unpleasant thing. And obviously they had some form of, you know, like filter filtration that they might try to accomplish. But the idea was that a cistern was much, much less desirable as terms of water than a fresh flowing artesian well or a fountain or a spring. This was much less desirable than something like that. Now, how does this apply? to the situation in Judah. You know, 
the, the, the experience or the wording that's used here, the fountains of living water, Jesus used something like this with the woman at the well. Do you remember what he told her? He said, if you drink from this well, and he pointed to Jacob's well, he said, you will, you will thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I will give you, then this water will be a fountain that will flow up in you and you will never thirst again. Now, I believe that today there are many people like Judah who are drinking from broken cisterns. And they're looking for something to quench the thirst of their heart. And they just keep drinking at these broken cisterns. Let me give you an example. Um, suppose that you are a person who is lonely and maybe you're single or, you know, you might be married, but maybe, you know, you don't live in your family or what have you. And you're lonely and you're, you're thinking, you know, if I had this person in my life, you know, if I had a girlfriend, if I had a boyfriend, if my parents lived close, if my siblings, if my children live close. And the truth is that it is, it is a common thought that a person can make us happy. You know, when I was single, I thought, you know, if I get married, man, I'll be, that's it. You know, that's all I need, right? And the truth is that even if you're happily married, which I am, the truth is that you can still realize that any person is unable to give you lasting satisfaction in your life because only God is the fountain of living waters. And so the, you know, the fallacy that, you know, if I have a boyfriend, if I have a girlfriend, if I have a baby, if I have this, if I have that, that somehow having a person can somehow quench the thirst of our soul. That's a broken cistern, folks. That will never really satisfy you. But Jesus, the fountain of living waters, he can. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give you another example. You know, some people, they find their meaning and identity in the work that they do. And, you know, you might be the employee of the month, or you might have received, you know, the industry award for out, being outstanding in your field, or you might have promotion after promotion, or, you know, you might be this, this uh, you know, person that, that has consulting opportunities because, you know, you're an industry thought leader or whatever. The truth is that no amount of promotion, no amount of earthly success can really satisfy the earnest cravings of the inner heart. This is just another broken cistern. You can drink and drink and drink, and you'll be thirsty again. But there, will, there is a inner satisfaction that comes when you know you're right with God, when you spend time in his word, when you have meaningful prayer life, that no amount of human success can ever satisfy. You know, during the pandemic, uh, I read that most businesses are struggling right now, but there's a few businesses that have really taken off. Some of you might know, but Netflix reached record subscriptions during this period. And, you know, this is my theory. My theory is that these forms of entertainment, especially highlighting the fact that during the pandemic, they're taking off. These forms of entertainment, I believe, receive attention because I think that people either through, you know, anxiety or stress or, or depression, all these negative emotions in order to drown out the cacophony of, of 
you know, sorrow and unhappiness, they escape. And, you know, you think like, okay, if I watch this, oh, the next episode, oh, you know, and in a way, this is a broken sister because you're hoping that that will somehow pacify the, the inner turmoil of the heart. And ultimately, it won't do that. It's just another broken cistern. You can watch and watch and watch and watch and binge watch four seasons of your favorite TV show. But in the end, it's going to just leave you thirsty again. Friends, I want you to know that there's nothing like spending time with God in his word. There's nothing like, like having a meaningful prayer life. There's nothing like fellowshipping with fellow believers and, and sharing what God has done for you. These kinds of experiences, they don't give us the euphoria and the, the sensational kind of, you know, excitement that the world gives, but they give a lasting satisfaction that is incomparable to any other well that we might drink of in the world. And friends, this is the message that God has for us today in the book of Jeremiah. He's real. He, he's been so good to us. He's loved us with passion. He's He's protected us. He's provided for us. But he wants to know, you know, why do we say one thing and, and do something else? Why are we stubborn? Why don't we recognize what we've done wrong, you know? And so he's, he's asking us to come back and he's asking us to drink. He wants us to quench and satisfy the thirst of our soul by finding him and having a deep, meaningful relationship with him. That's my challenge for you. I know that during this pandemic, you're going to have some extra time on your hands. And I know some people are going back to work and such. But make no mistake, these things, these are only the means to an end. True joy, true satisfaction, true happiness, true meaning and purpose, they come when we find our creator and we understand God's purpose and his will for our lives. And that's my challenge to you, to drink from that fountain of living waters this week, not just this week, but for the rest of your life and make your life and your priorities straight because you've anchored them in God and in his will. I'm gonna invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. And then we're gonna close our service with music. Father in heaven, I wanna thank you for this book that gives us hope about a God who was a lover that wooed us. And even though at times we have turned away, even though at times we may have gone astray, we ask that today we would hear the clarion call of the one who truly loves us and the one who can give us lasting satisfaction and joy and peace. So please, Father, help us to avoid, help us to turn away from those cisterns that just are empty and just, they don't even really taste that good, but help us to, to be able to sink and to enjoy ourselves in that endlessly deep well of your love. I pray that you will bless each one here today for we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen.